Laura Baraja says she's lucky to be alive. I say I am a walking miracle after all I've been through. Laura is a recipient, a donor family member, and she's currently on the waiting list. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Talk Hope. I'm Lauren Plavnik. And I'm Marian Shuck. Today, we're going to explore one of the lesser known aspects of donation, the waiting list. We'll first hear from Laura Barajas, who is a donor family member, a recipient, and she is currently experiencing what it's like to be on the waiting list. We're now joined by Laura, and we're so grateful for her willingness to share her story. Laura, can you delve into your first encounter into the donation world? At the age of nine, I was taking karate classes, and in a tournament, I was hit in my pancreas, which caused pancreatitis. I, I really don't know the exact date from when that happened to the day that I landed in the hospital with severe stomach pain and vomiting blood, but it was caused by the, the kick that I received in, in the tournament from karate class. I became diabetic from that and that the diabetes is what has caused all my issues nowadays. I was then diagnosed with neuropathy on my legs. When I was diagnosed with that, my kidneys started giving up. They stopped uh, functioning. So that's when they, the doctor told me that I, I was going to need a kidney transplant. At that time, I had my brother, who was uh, three years younger than, than myself. Uh, he said he would donate. He had came from the Marines at that time. He was a Marine. And we did the transplant. But unfortunately, he was robbed and, and shot. So he died December 25th of the same year that we had the transplant that, like I, like I mentioned, that did take a, a big toll on my family and myself. And so even though I was already on the list again for a pancreas, I was taken off the list for about a year. And then I was on medications after the doctor thought that I, I was doing better. They put me back on the list and thank God. It took about two months before I was on the list and they called me for a pancreas. So I had the pancreas transplant February of 2011. It took me about a whole year for me to feel better and recuperate because since I had the kidney, well, it was, it was a little bit harder to, for my body to accept the pancreas and, and the kidney was kind of rejecting the pancreas. So it took me I, I don't know, maybe about nine to 12 months to feel better and do my own thing. After that, this is when I, I really got involved with Gift of Hope and started doing more events. We were doing events back to back. We were educating many Hispanics on what donation was. We registered thousands of people at all these events we did. I also at that time decided that I wanted to open up an organization under my brother's name to help other people that needed a transplant. So what my brother's fund was going to do was raise money for people who needed a transplant, but let's say their donor was out in California. What the fund would do, it would cover the travel expenses, the hotel, and the food for the donor while he was doing the donation. Unfortunately, I had to stop because after eight years, I caught pneumonia and my body rejected both of the organs. I was in the hospital for a little bit over a month when my body was having the rejection. 
after, you know, I felt a little better, I came home and I remember one night not being able to breathe. So they rushed me to the hospital and they said that I needed dialysis at that time. I was uh, super swollen and I was having trouble breathing. So they put me on dialysis basically that same night. Up to today, I've been on dialysis. Now I'm going on four years on dialysis. It's been a long road for me, <laughs> but I, I pray every day and I am so thankful that I am here. I, I say I am a, a walking miracle after all I've been through while doing all the tests to be updated for the transplant list. They discovered I had seven clogged arteries in my heart. They removed three veins from my right leg to fix my heart. So I had open heart surgery two years ago. And thankfully, it went well. You know, I continue to do what I could do, supporting Gift of Hope and telling friends about organ donation. Basically, where I'm at right now is waiting on the list. It's been a long road, but, you know, like I said, I, I am a walking miracle and, and I am so grateful and I, I feel so blessed. And we're waiting for a donor soon. I'm, I'm thinking this, this is my year for my donor. <laughs> well, we certainly hope so. First, we want to say we're so sorry about the loss of your brother, and we thank him for his service. Do you remember what it felt like when you found out your brother was going to donate his kidney to you? It took a big load off of me. This was my first time ever learning about transplantation. I, I had no idea what it was. I think I, I was so uneducated. I didn't know what to expect. I thought it was the worst thing that I, I was going to go through, but it wasn't. It's actually, you're, you're giving a person the second opportunity to live, and it's a miracle. So Laura, what does it mean for you to be part of a donor family while also being a recipient and currently waiting for a transplant? I think it's, it's a blessing that at that time, I didn't have to wait, and my brother took the step to come forward and say, you know what, don't worry about it. I, I got your back. And we're going to do this together. I feel very honored because he was a Marine, because he gave me a, another opportunity. And it's just a blessing. Laura, you had talked about the work you do in the Hispanic community to promote donation. Can you elaborate more on some of the efforts you've done and also the importance of doing work specifically targeted in the Hispanic community? Yes, we, at that time, I was with Raisa Mendoza. We did many events wherever we we could get an opportunity, which was events at hospitals. We would even go to carnivals, festivals, churches, you know, wherever we saw an opportunity, we would be there. It was a beautiful experience. And I feel proud that we educated many Hispanic people that, you know, they were scared. They had different myths of what it is uh, being an organ donor. We register so many people. Marion and I are constantly working with mis and misconceptions surrounding organ donation, and education is definitely key. You said that when you first were about to get your transplant, you thought it was the worst thing in the world. What myths did you have to overcome to be in the positive mindset that you have now? In the Hispanic community, I think there's many myths, and I think one of them is that people do not register because they assume that if they have a car accident, the ambulance is going to see their driver's license and say, okay, he's an organ donor, so let's not save his life. That's like number one myth that they have. 
and you need to explain to them that there's doctors that need to save your life. That's what they go to school for, to save people's lives. Thinking that way is obviously the wrong way to think because that is not true. Other people uh, mentioned many times that talking about, I guess, religion, where they said that if they come in one body, they have to go back in one body, one, one spirit. So you need to let them know how they can have an open coffin if something like that were to happen. Laura, you've been a recipient. Now you're back on dialysis. Can you help us understand what it was like to be a recipient and be free from dialysis? And now what it's like to be back on dialysis and what are your hopes for a new kidney and a new pancreas? I feel very, very blessed. I can explain to you how blessed that I am. I believe that I still have many things to do with gift of hope. It was a toll taken off of me. A big load was taken off of me when I was transplanted. And for eight years, I was doing so good. Unfortunately, I caught pneumonia and I ended up in the hospital and the rejection started. But I can say that now, I think everyone always has a good day and a bad day. But when we try to make it a good day, even though we're going through through the worst, that's what helps us move on. Dialysis is hard. It, it drains you. It gets you super tired. But I am thankful that, you know, that I can at least have dialysis now and be able to walk, to breathe, to continue educating people for this cause. And I think that this year is my year and I will be back to full time at Gift of Hope because I love it. I enjoy it. I, I love speaking to people and changing their thoughts, what it is, organ donation. And Laura, I just want to personally thank you as I've worked with you at Gift of Hope for the past five years. You've been a wonderful volunteer and having someone who is walking the walk and talking the talk is so important, as you've mentioned to our collective communities. What has been your reception in your community as you've been talking about your experience when educating others about the importance of registering? You know, I am always talking and my conversations even sometimes when I'm in the hospital or at the clinic waiting, you'll see me talking to the patient next to me. And somehow we always end up talking about organ donation. I, I am always pushing, uh, no matter where I am or what the conversation is about, I am always pushing organ donation. So somehow we always end up talking about how important it is to be an organ donor. I think it's interesting you say that. Actually, yesterday I found out that my aunt is a social worker at a dialysis center in Philadelphia. So it's true that you just talk to someone and end up talking about donation. And someone you thought might not have known anything about donation actually has some kind of connection or personal experience in the donation world. Currently, there are almost 108,000 people on the national waiting list waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. Can you give some perspective about what it feels like to be waiting for an organ? And what would you say to people who maybe aren't registered to encourage them to register? Well, I think they can save, give someone else the opportunity that they're waiting for a second chance of life. There's no words to thanking someone who takes a step to saving your life. There's no money that can pay for that. There's no words that you can say to thank the person. I mean, you're, you're just grateful for the rest of your life and you're blessed every day and taking it day by day and doing the best you can. I know right now with what everyone is going through the pandemic, it was so hard to make changes 
whether it was working from home or whether it was looking for something else because you lost your job, there's always going to be obstacles. But if we look for the positives, you'll always find a positive and that little positive is going to make your day the best and it's going to motivate you to keep going. I think that's a really great note to leave everyone with that positivity is key. And it sounds like through everything that you've been going through, you're staying positive and we're here for you and to support you. Thank you so much for your time today and enlightening us about your story, telling us about your brother and your experience on the waiting list. We really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. (laughs) Thank you. now going to hear about the United Network for Organ Sharing, abbreviated as UNOS, a national nonprofit that matches life-saving organs from deceased donors to those on the national waiting list. Today, we're joined by Lisa Schaffner, the Public Relations and Marketing Director for UNOS. Lisa, can you tell me more about what UNOS does? Very simply put, UNOS, United Network for Organ Sharing, you and me working together to save lives through donation and transplantation. And UNOS is a national nonprofit. We happen to be based and located in Richmond, Virginia. And very simply, we run the nation's transplant system. And what that means is we're matching those life-saving organs, the heart, lung, liver, kidney, pancreas, intestine. We're matching those organs 24 hours a day, seven days a week from donors to patients in need. And that process takes place through our vast computer system that's located in Richmond. And uh, we've been doing this for um, more than three decades now. It's just, um, as you all know, and, and who's listening, it takes a village to do our work. And the end result, our lives saved through organ donation and transplantation. And it's just a wonderful collaboration. Lisa, can you tell us how is the database managed? Who goes onto the list and how is it prioritized? We talk about the people going onto the list. And often, I always like to, to give visualizations, if you would. And when people talk about a list, you think about a line, people standing in line. And it's not like that. The list is, it's this whole gathering of um recipients that we have that are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. So they're on this list, but this list moves around. It's based on a lot of different qualifications and criteria. Right now, and in fact, just before we gathered for our little discussion here, I polled right now in current time, 107,871 people across this country are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. And so those individuals, their patients, they're being treated at transplant transplant centers, medical facilities all over our country, and they're working with a transplant surgeon and that they're deemed that they are in, their organ is failing and that they go onto the list. And there are some very specific criteria that you have to meet in order to become eligible to be listed on what we call the list, the transplant waiting list. And you have to be pretty sick and it's end stage organ failure is where you are. I think what I also, when I talk about this is when we talk about 107,000 lives, those are people. Each of them has a unique story to share. And each of them, when they go on the list, they know that they need this transplant to survive, to make it to the next holiday, to celebrate a graduation or a birthday or the birth of a new baby in their family, whatever that looks like. What we do in this vast community, working with our OPOs and working with our transplant centers, is giving these patients going on the wait list hope. 
So that's just very, um, I think, important element of what we do. That is so interesting. Um, I feel like I'm constantly learning new things just being on this podcast, but being out in the field, one of the myths that I hear most commonly is that if someone is wealthy, they can be put to the top of the list. Can you talk about some of the myths that you commonly hear and dispel those for us right here? Oh, I would love to. And that is such a huge myth. It continues on. Everyone can have a conversation and what I call set the record straight, right? So one of the biggest myths, oh, I'm too old. I don't need to register to be an organ donor. I really believe in it, but you'll never want my organs. And I hear that all the time. And let me go one by one. So when I hear that one, I must admit, you can't see me, but I'm getting up there too. I'm pretty old. And I'll tell you, I think I'm a pretty healthy individual. I'm a registered organ donor. And if and when that time comes, I'm hoping that that is going to happen for me to become a deceased donor. However, I don't know what those organs in my body look like right now. So what we say, if you're so inclined to register, you don't know what those organs look like. Don't be so presumptuous and just go ahead and register. And if and when the time comes, then let the medical professionals decide if those organs are viable for transplant. So too old, organs not viable. That's, that's, a, that's a biggie, biggie. Another one is that if I register for the organ donors, you're not going to fight to save my life when that critical time comes. Say that you're involved in a car accident and they pull up and the myth goes that you open up the driver's license, they see that you're an organ donor. Ah, well, she's better or he's better dead than alive. Well, that is completely not true. All medical professionals, they take the oath, they will do everything possible to save an individual's life. But when that time comes that they realize that that's not going to be possible, then that donation process will begin. And we have, as you all work so closely with our donor family members, understand and begin those conversations at medical facilities. So that's another one. And then the other one is the wealthiest get the organ. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. So when we kind of go back to that question of who's on the wait list, 107,000 people when we find the perfect organ, what we say is the right organ for the right person at the right time. That's really hard to do for 107,000 people, but all of us working together are trying to make that happen. We don't know that person's name. We do not know that person's wealth or income. We don't know the person's loved ones. What we know about that person that's on the wait list is how sick they are. We know their medical criteria. We know their blood type. We know geographically where they're located in the country. We know what organ that they need transplanted. Those are the things that we know. We don't know their wealth. So we can't, we as an organization and as an entire system, that's just it doesn't happen. And it's incumbent upon all of us. When you hear something like that, well, that doesn't sound right. Are you sure about that information? And you question people because everyone listening can be our voice to make the system better and to make more people understand the donation process and transplantation. And when we talk about it, transplantation is the end game, the end result, saving lives through organ transplantation. But let us all be very clear. It starts singularly 
with one donor making that choice and that wonderful donor family who makes the choice to give and knowing that that gift is a life-saving gift. We can't do transplant without the donation side of it. It just doesn't happen. And so donors are extremely important. And if there's anyone that has a myth upon which they don't want to become a registered organ donor, then it's up to all of us to correct the myths and set the record straight, have those conversations. And Lisa, one of the biggest myths is that marginalized communities, communities of color, are disproportionately represented on that list. And a lot of them have a healthy mistrust of the healthcare community. And so in speaking with them about participating in the organ and tissue donation process, some of those longstanding myths and misconceptions go back 50, 60 years. Can you talk a little bit about how you know works with organ procurement organizations as a way to help dispel that myth for the population that represents the largest number of people waiting on the transplant list. Yeah, and we're talking about kidney and there are so many so many that are that are waiting for the organ of kidney. You're in your right. And let's be clear too, it's very understandable why there is hesitation. Um, there's a long history of things that have not happened forthright in our medical history. And it's very understandable. So it's up to UNOS to lead the way, along with our OPOs and our transplant centers to those in the minority communities to understand that we're trying to correct what I would label wrongs of the past. And let's open this up and be transparent. And that's what's most important. We really want to be a transparent community so you see what's happening. So first and foremost, we really believe in conversation and open conversation. And so with that, as an organization, UNOS is actually reaching out. We have information on our website that provides very transparent information and what it's there. And it's available to all people of all colors. So come and absorb it. And we can get back to that in a bit. We also also are through UNOS, we run the transplant system through what's called the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. Acronyms are very big, OPTN, Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. And this network is comprised of more than 23 different committees. And among them, we have a minority affairs committee. We understand how important it is to have that voice help us to be aware of conversations that are taking place across the country when it comes to donation and transplantation, to concerns and to policies, to make sure that our policies are more diverse and we're becoming better. I'm not gonna say we're great. Nothing is great because there's always this constant improvement. Things can always be better. And anyone who's listening, if you have a true passion and you wanna advocate in this arena, we wanna hear from you. Help us to make this better more voices make it better all the time. And in fact, I would give you an example of that right now through the OPTN, we run what's called public comment. And there are nine different policies that are open for what we call public comment. We wanna hear from everybody, all voices. But again, that's part of the process. You gotta know about it in order to give your comments and your thoughts and be a part of the system. And so that's the reason this is so important. This let's talk hope right now with this podcast that we talk about and, and getting you involved because we want you involved. So public comment is one of those ways and you can go on on the OPTN. If you just type into a, a search browser, OPTN, it'll come up and look for public comment. And if perhaps you're not open right now to giving your thoughts 
thoughts on what those topics are that we currently have in the fall, there are more topics open for public comment. And it's also a great way to educate yourself because each of the areas that we have that are open for public comment, for your input, for all people across the country, we have history behind what the new policy is. Um, there's an educational component to it, and then you can give your input to it. So um, that might be a long-winded, but I think it's really important that everyone understands that is a part of the donation transplant community, that this is diverse and we need to make it diverse and we need to make it better. And by doing that, it's an open communication. Thank you so much. Just thinking that a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with UNO, so this is the first time they might be hearing about it. What can you tell someone who maybe just got put on the list what to expect? They can expect that this is an organization of caring people and um, that our vision at United Network for Organ Sharing is a life-saving transplant for everyone in need. Now, we're not there yet. I believe and I hope that in, in this, in my generation, that we're going to see that. And that would mean that there wouldn't be a wait list of 107,000 people waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. Your positive energy and your passion for organ and tissue donation and transplantation is palpable through the screen. And I'm excited to go to Richmond, Virginia and visit and get back in the field to educate some more people. So thanks for being on today. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Hope. We encourage you to start the conversation about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones today and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor on giftofhope.org or by texting HOPE to 51555.